0: Bitcoin rallied to a record high today to $65,467. All right, before we go to break, just wanted to highlight once again the move. And I'm laughing because we haven't shown it in a few minutes and it's moved up another <laughs> new record above 66000 now.
1: It wasn't long ago that it felt as if nothing could derail the extraordinary rally in the value of Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies. No matter what negative headline was thrown at the space, it just kept going up. And depending where you pointed your internet browser, the rally was either an obvious one that any dummy could have seen coming, or a fraudulent travesty to be avoided at all costs. On the trading floors of the Wall Street banks, there's a universal saying for a stock that just won't go down, no matter what rolls across the tape. In the lead up to crypto's latest crash, Bitcoin was bid only. I mean, why not Bitcoin
2: 100,000 before year end? It's hard to, at least today, uh, make that bare case for it. Who's to say? I mean, what's the worth in trying to create some sort of fundamental explanation for why Bitcoin is ripping up today? It was a wild year last year, but there were some real breakthroughs. We saw cryptocurrencies really become part of the financial furniture, as it were.
1: But here's the thing. While the blockchain technology which forms the plumbing through which the crypto markets operate is complex, the majority of investors who buy and sell tokens on its various exchanges are unsophisticated private individuals, attracted by the prospect of easy money. And over the course of its latest bull market, the crypto space began to attract more of the complex structuring and financial wizardry aimed at pumping up short-term returns, which, has at several times in recent memory, brought the entire global financial system to its knees. And that's why in an abstract kind of way, it feels like we've seen what's going on in the crypto markets now, before. The first major sell-off in cryptocurrencies was triggered by the collapse of a bubble in speculating on new tokens. and it looked a lot like the dot-com crash of 2000. When investors realized that just having the word com in your company's name didn't automatically make it valuable. Today, the collapse of the highly structured algorithmic stablecoin market and the way that subsequent financial stress is compounding through the system looks a lot like the subprime mortgage crisis of 2008. And as the list of failed entities deeply connected to the entire crypto ecosystem grows, a saying that was popularised by Wall Street traders in the process of presiding over several of their own financial catastrophes, unfortunately feels grimly appropriate. Markets go up by the stairs, but they come down in the elevator even for those
2: diehard Bitcoin supporters. The last 74 hours were a very rough ride. 50% drop to go to those one week losses right now, and they are brutal. More than 600 billion in market value wiped out from Bitcoin's peak alone. Ethereum and Solana, Cardano. Celsius filing for bankruptcy definitely wasn't a surprise. One
1: of the largest players in the crypto lending space. We're talking more than $8 billion in loans to clients and almost $12 billion in assets under management and yields were as high as 17%. We know of at least one lawsuit where Celsius is being accused of functioning like a Ponzi scheme. Well, this is a very bumpy story that we're looking at here.
2: The Block had reported yesterday that the Luna Foundation would seek to raise more than a billion dollars in order to stabilize the stable coin. Now, margin positions were being liquidated. That caused a wave of additional selling pressure. Systemic risks associated
1: with a stable well, okay, de-pay. okay. So make no mistake, the cryptocurrency market is currently battling a five alarm fire and it's far from obvious how it's going to be resolved. So the natural question to ask is, who set the fire? The crash was triggered in part by the collapse of something called the Terra Stablecoin. Stablecoins are meant to be backed one-to-one by some other valuable asset in order to insulate them from the wild swings in price that we see in most cryptocurrencies. The idea is that if a stablecoin is backed by, say, one US dollar and can be freely exchanged back for that one US dollar at any time, its price should more or less stay at one US dollar. And in theory, because stable coins are less volatile than other cryptocurrencies over time, they're more suitable to be used in decentralized financial technology that operates on a blockchain. But in crypto's last bull market, some financial innovators invented a new concept that they said could deliver the same price stability without holding the same collateral. Instead, newly issued stable coins could be pegged to other newly minted coins, which could mutually support one another's value. And they called their whiz-bang new invention. Algorithmic stable coins, like TerraUSD, are
0: not backed by hard assets, but a nebulous term called financial engineering that ties it to the U.S. dollar. We're seeing Terra um, having broken the buck and Tether under some pressure as well, which is the largest one. Although I can't say that they have reached the scale right now where they're a financial stability concern, they're growing very rapidly.
1: And as has happened so many times throughout history, when someone's come up with a new investment strategy capable of conjuring up huge returns out of thin air. Initially, many unsophisticated retail investors, along with a few unsophisticated institutional ones too, couldn't get enough of it. But shortly thereafter, just like it did at the 2008 subprime crisis, the dot-com crash and the Asian financial crisis of 97 before that, the music stopped. And the open market served investors up an important lesson in the efficient market hypothesis. But it didn't come for free.
2: Well, let's just look at what's happened to this stablecoin price, the Terra USD price. Look at that, absolutely extraordinary drop. The sister uh, token, Luna, It's basically worth zero now. That massively collapsed, bringing down its sister token, Luna, with it. And that was big and sent shockwaves through the industry, really starting a lot of this contagion.
0: Well, Bitcoin and all other major cryptocurrencies today tanking with drops of 10% or more this morning. Fortune reports the plunge has led to an overall market loss of more than $205 billion in just 24 hours.
1: Our first guest today has been instrumental in broadening access to the crypto market using things like exchange-traded funds. And he comes to crypto from an unusual background, even by crypto standards. And that's the CEO of Corestone Capital and Vice Chairman of Valkyrie Investments, Will McDonough. But why I say Will has an unusual background pertains to his other gig as the founder of talent management firm MMG. MMG represent clients ranging from the estate of Nelson Mandela through to professional athletes. And some of them can play a bit too. Like this bloke. The great Tom Brady had completed 10 in a now second and goal. 319! Toss to White! He's
0: in! Patriots win the Super Bowl!
1: And our second guest today is the Chief Financial Officer of Circle, Jeremy Foxgein. Circle are the issuer of the USDC stablecoin, one of the only majors that's actually been stable during this current downturn. Jeremy's going to tell us about Circle's strategy, why their stablecoin works, and how he sees its utility as a trustworthy financial conduit on the blockchain as integral to the next evolution in the global financial system. I'll also say that, in light of some of the more nefarious activity recently reported in the crypto market, I don't own any cryptocurrencies, nor a stake in any of the companies whose executives I've interviewed in the podcast. All right, so without further ado, here's Will McDonough in part one of the Crypto Crash. All right, Will, do you want to just say something to check that we're on?
0: Will McDonough, Will McDonough.
1: Loud and clear. Will, thanks so much for having me in. We're sitting here in beautiful Nantucket, Massachusetts. Uh, it's my first time here. It's a beautiful place, mate.
0: It is a beautiful place. 30 miles uh, southeast of Massachusetts. Uh, they call it the nation of Nantucket. And when people leave it, they said they're going back to the United States. So today you'll have that
1: experience. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's very, it reminds me a bit of the Cape, um, but it certainly has like a, end-of-the-world vibe because you're on an island and you're sort of a bit further out.
0: Yeah, you know, there's a fun dynamic out here a lot of settlers from England coming in this direction. Um, this, at one point, was the whaling capital of the world. And so as you walked the streets to, to come meet... Um, you walked on a bunch of English cobblestone which gives it this really old school feel and those cobblestones came over in the hulls of empty ships that were due to go back full of whale oil. Oh wow. And so when they would pull into the uh, downtown here and into the docks they would unload their hulls. So they used it as ballast and then... Correct. Right, right. Yeah and so that's why it really feels uh, a lot older than uh, than even the United States of America is. Well
1: now I know who to blame for my rolled ankle when <laughs> yeah. I was walking through the, uh, through the streets on the way here. So Will Thanks so much for joining us today. I think the topic of our discussion um, is going to be pretty broad and around cryptocurrencies from the perspective of the current pressure that's on the crypto market. Some would call it a crash. Others would call it an unwind. Others would call it an opportunity. Others would call it an opportunity. <laughs> there you go. I remember my first ever boss at Merrill Lynch in Sydney. The first thing he said to me on day one, I joined in, on the 8th of August, 2008, in the middle of the financial crisis. He sat the five of us down who were joining his grads and he said, I'll tell you something, I don't know any rich pessimists. <laughs> Pretty good advice, I reckon. So, well, I'd love if you told us a little bit about your current role as a CEO and founder of CoreStone. Um, also, any sort of other um, activity that you're undertaking at the moment within the crypto space. I'd also love to you know a bit about your earlier professional career um, some of your success there and what put you in the position that you found yourself in to be able to allocate the amount of time, focus, um, and ultimately money to to the crypto space?
0: Yeah, um, as many, I, I came at via Crooked Path. So um, I started my career actually when I was 16 years old Uh, Before I had my license, unbeknownst to them, I was driving the van for a a local radio station, handing out bumper stickers and doing promotions for them. Um, Pulled off a promotion at a Patriot game that almost got me arrested and ultimately got me hired to oversee promotions for the New England Patriots my senior uh, year in high school. What was the stunt? Uh, I was just, uh, uh, we were driving in a place we should not have been uh, handing out things. We, we, We kind of front ran a promotion that the team was trying to execute with our own and got a little bit more attention to the radio station than to this, the corporate sponsor. Uh, so about 12 months later, I was the one executing on behalf of the corporate sponsor. Um, but that was a, a, fun jump into the kind of corporate world from a young age. And I was lucky to go to Boston college and, and stay in the area so I could keep working for the Patriots, uh, you know, through some bad years, uh, on the field. But, um, as luck would have it, the year that I graduated from BC, we, um, one uh, we uh, won the Super Bowl out of nowhere 2001 Super Bowl uh, which w- was a famous game in kind of the history of the NFL. We were opening a new stadium the next year and so uh, I had started as a 17 uh, year old if you will with uh, about 30 people working for the organization and then graduated college as a 21 year old with about you know, 300 people worked for the organization. So just uh, by luck ended up being more senior than I uh, probably should have been, but there was a big opportunity. And so I did that for the next five years. I was also lucky, um, you know, as those teams were so successful and their their stars were growing uh, globally, I was able to represent and manage the career of Tom Brady and and some of his teammates, which really put me in some fascinating rooms and, and led to some amazing introductions and opportunities for, for both of us. Uh, one of those opportunities End up being that we started a uh, fund of funds in 2007 okay. in partnership with a firm called Avenue Capital in New York. In October of 2007, okay. uh, we launched that fund, which is the tippity top before um, you know the the tide went out. That was right at the top. It was. It was, it, and that was our gift and our curse because we uh, we probably never would have gotten the business launched if it was six months later. But uh, it was also a very tough environment to launch a business. So I did that. We managed up to $250 million in that strategy, which was not what we wanted it to be, but you know, we were still proud of it nonetheless. And then I was recruited away to Goldman Sachs in 2010 um, by Gary Cohn, who's another person I will jump in traffic for. Uh, Gary um, was the president of Goldman at the time, went on to be National Economic Council director under Trump, and um, is now well-known for being on the uh, board of IBM and leading their kind of charge to, to domicile chip production. Yeah. Um, fascinating guy uh, who I was lucky to be with this past weekend and, and always learn a lot from. Gary brought me into Goldman uh, to work for the team that managed his money and the money of the partners of Goldman. So I did that for several years and then in uh, mid-13 left and partnered with the former CEO of Barclays, um, and we we did a SPAC before people could spell SPAC. But uh, no, we we had a successful business there and acquired a bunch of banks in Africa, which uh, became a passion of mine and, and something I've enjoyed, you know, continuing to to uh, participate in and and um, and contribute to. And then since then, you know, the day that went went public, I was lucky to be able to start Corestone and just kind of hang my own shingle and do my own thing and. Um, allocate my time to things that I felt like I could really add value to, um, not so much passively as uh, things I could either incubate or I could invest in and help guide and and drive. Could you
1: describe for everybody what what CoreStone does, what your core
0: competencies are as a firm,
1: um, you know, what sort of business lines you're you're most focused in on at the moment?
0: I have constantly been uh, obsessed with creating liquid structures for investors to get retail exposure to harder to access asset classes. Right. So in 2013, that was by this London Stock Exchange traded equity that gives you exposure to Pan African banking growth. How can we continue to do that? And so um, through crypto, you know, I've uh, been vice chairman of a firm called Valkyrie that we got NASDAQ's first Bitcoin listed ETF, which was in the same vein, right? Let's get an ETF into the market that's based on futures market of Bitcoin, but allow the easiest. To consume product for people to get that exposure in their portfolio
1: and that's been coincident with a period where etfs in general have exploded how are you seeing um, that retail appetite for etfs in more traditional financial instruments translate to demand for etfs in things like crypto
0: yeah it's it's certainly occurring um i think it's a broader conversation about wall street and about Kind of the maturation of how investors are allocating their own portfolios. There became this whole movement towards kind of macro calls and finding ways to display positions in portfolios. Do I need to give it to a hedge fund manager and pay them two and twenty to get me exposure to the oil markets when I can just buy all the buy the oil ETF and kind of get ninety nine percent of the upside that I might have gotten in a more actively strategy? So those were passively managed ETFs, which have now matured to the active. Space, I believe that is where the puck is going in that space. Uh, you know, as as Wayne Gretzky said.
1: So, that, so this isn't maybe an interesting point to to focus in on a bit of what's happening at the moment in the current market for crypto, because obviously there's been a lot of turbulence, a lot of things are falling rapidly, and, and we're having dead cat bounces and bear market rallies in different um, in different instruments as well. But you know, I, I, I'm not an expert on crypto, and I, I I've followed it just in so far as it's been in the news since inception, but I've never bought any, so clearly I've been wrong, right? And, and that's not because I've had a directional view on it, but it's not something that I've ever th- felt that I fully understood. Something that appears to be going on now is that that line between an ETF or a money market fund where you put money into something knowing that you have a unitary interest of the financial returns that the underlying portfolio will generate, that's one thing. And a hedge fund or an actively managed book is a completely different thing. The definition of those two appears to be blurred somewhat in this space. And I'd use an example of something like Celsius, right, which is obviously in the headlines at the moment, a big firm which, which appears to have um, gone under. Those guys appeared to be advertising their product. It was basically riskless. Effectively, you put money into a money market fund like you would with Fidelity or somebody else with normal, in a normal transaction and they would print you back. Yields that looked very, very attractive, but the reporting seems to suggest that what was going on under the surface was very different, that they were just actively managing basically all the money that came in and punting it around and they, they, they lost. So, you know, is this an issue defining clearly what each crypto service or product is to investors?
0: Definitely so. As with any rising asset class, you know there's 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 players that bring different theses and approaches to it uh, with many different angles, and some of them flame out, and some of them mature and progress. Right, but at
1: the moment, is there much stopping an actor from promoting, say, something like Celsius as risk free when in reality it, it is not risk free? In fact, it's very risky.
0: So Celsius was not a decentralized protocol, and I'll explain the delineation uh, as clearly as I can. Celsius was a single central party that was going into the market, going to retail investors saying, put your money on deposit here, and I'll give you a yield of that. And it's upon them to go out and generate a higher yield than that and keep the spread. By the way, you may remember not so long ago, banks would advertise that they will sell you a CD that will pay you a percent. And really what they're trying to do is attract your deposits and then use your deposits to, to create loans and then use your loans to create more of a yield than they were offering in the CD. So this is not a new-
1: I mean, the net interest margin model is an axiom of modern economics, but do you think that there's enough regulation or enough transparency um, insisted upon when people market things like what Celsius's product was? Right.
0: I think for sure that regulated markets should exist for products that are being sold to retail investors. Um, there's no question about that. But an, a very interesting and important thing happened and is happening in the Celsius unwind, for lack of a better term. The week before Celsius declared bankruptcy, after it was very clear that they were in in, in dire trouble, they paid back a pool that was created on a 100%. They owed the pool $418 million. That piece of code required them to pay it back in full. So here you have Celsius, which is on the headline of all these papers and, and and exploding at the seams, that turns around and pays the decentralized network 100 cents on the dollar. And so now what's going to happen over the next three, six, 12 months most likely, is they're going to go through a bankruptcy process where a judge somewhere is going to sit and look around and say, okay, these retail investors are owed eighty-eight cents on the dollar, and these institutions are owed sixty-six cents on the dollar, and they're going to allocate how much of right. the principal pledged, you know, as collateral within Celsius is it, who's getting what from that. So, in that analogy, how senior is a Bitcoin investor in terms of the
1: seniority of the capital structure? So, if a typical Entity failed. Your secured creditors would be repaid. Your equity holders would lose the the value of their equity. Like, what, what happens to somebody who's? It's kind of like they've bought a high yield credit instrument or something, but by giving their Bitcoin to Celsius.
0: Yeah, that that uh, what the retail investor used as their uh, collateral or whatever the retail investor put into the Celsius pool in exchange for that yield is not going to matter whether they came in with Bitcoin or U.S. dollars. Right. What's been proven by this last. 30, 45 days is that Celsius's investments that were decentralized and that were on blockchain have already been paid back 100 cents on the dollar. It's yet to be seen, but it would appear that Celsius is under collateralized for what they owe retail investors. And therefore, those people are not getting back 100 cents on the dollar.
1: Okay, this is really interesting. So I didn't understand this at all. So you're saying people who engaged with Celsius using a smart contract on the blockchain have been made whole, 100%. but the people who went to the Celsius website and what is the other way to give them what
0: money? What you said is accurate, that if someone were to interact with a lending platform like Celsius, that was Decentral, they aren't at the discretion of a single central authority, a judge in a courtroom in Delaware, saying you're awarded 88 cents or 66 cents on the dollar. The code defines that. And there's no way for those contracts to be under collateralized unless they're via an algorithmic plan, which you know we could explore as well as one of the more recent blowups. But- this is a great point, though,
1: and one that I didn't appreciate.
0: So, I mean, it seems to me like Insisting on that sort of
1: structure might be a way going forward that we avoid some of the stuff which has happened more recently. Is that fair?
0: Yeah, and insisting on it, you know, we all have the ability to vote with our dollars. Engaging with blockchains decentrally is far and away the safest way to engage with any financial contract. On a blockchain, if you were to say, I have, I'll say the term wired money into a contract and the only way i can get that money out is if i complete that contract it's code it's not a judge in delaware it's code that until i repay that amount i'm not getting released what i put into it and that was it was actually proven which is so ironic to the whole celsius story celsius going bankrupt in reality, validated blockchain. It it actually
1: reinforces my initial perception I discussed, which is like that I I think that it feels like a, a bunch of um, higher risk actors, shall we say? Potentially, you know, there are examples of, of fraudulent ones you know have really piled into the space because it's become mainstream because it's become acceptable because everybody now knows that it's real i feel like it's been a fresh pasture for people with bad intentions to as with any new industry and and, and that's not a that that's not a criticism which is in any way idiosyncratic to cryptocurrencies. It's, it's what's happened in traditional finance over yeah, time absolutely. as
0: well. Yeah, yeah. It's an early market that people don't understand perfectly. And so it attracts bad actors that feel like there's an exploitation that could...
1: But it also seems like it's easier to be diligent in this market as a customer because you can insist on something which is codified contractually on the bo- blockchain as opposed to you know, someone whom you just transfer your money to and hope that they pay you what they said
0: they would. Right. So we have a hedge fund that, that uh, you know, and I'm not selfishly plugging this at all, but our hedge fund that trades in decentralized finance exclusively invests on chain. Okay. So we only invest into these contracts that are fully transparent right and so we can unwind them and we can understand because it's hard hard coded ones and zeros that if we want that money out here's how we get that out and here's what our, the risk that we're subjecting ourselves to celsius and actors like celsius they're centralized finance they're not decentralized finance well
1: i mean yeah it's just it's just asking it's a hedge fund but, but 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 it's just one guy just holding all your money and punting it around so that's a really good segue to the sort of the next area i wanted to cover so within the defi market um, You know, one of the things which appears to have drawn a lot of the liquidity in, which is obviously why it has flown out so violently, is the size of the yields that appear to be available. So, um, you know, as a finance guy, when I look at that, I, I don't understand it. So who, who is or is anyone actually paying these rates that are available in the DeFi market? And, and who are they and Why?
0: Yeah, uh, some listeners may remember being offered a CD from a bank that had uh, what, what you may have walked by the window of the bank and perceived to be a high rate. Really what they had done is figured out that they could make a dollar more than they were giving you, and that was a good business for them to be in and that spread, you know, built a lot of big banks. What's gone on in the decentralized finance markets, no doubt, is new players have shown up and to in, to incent deposit and therefore incent liquidity on their networks, they have overly compensated the network with yield. Well, what's interesting about that is a lot of that yield was being paid in the native token to the pool that was offering it. But why that's important is because I don't seek to be long the asset that they're paying me the yield in. Yeah, exactly. Because it's a young, unproven it's like being paid with an IOU, right? It's like it's being paid with uh, warrants in a startup. Yeah, exactly. But it's fully liquid, so I can harvest that daily, liquidate it into a stablecoin daily, and stick it right back in my back pocket if that's what I chose to do. And
1: so this this kind of interlinks doesn't it with the idea of algorithmic stablecoins and stuff?
0: Because one of the,
1: from my understanding, one of the sources of of very widespreads that were available was. A program similar to what you're discussing, which was set up to encourage capital to move onto the Terra um, chain. Is, is that the right language? To move onto the Terra chain? Yep. Um, now, it's, it's promotional,
0: basically, is the answer.
1: Will it come back in that case? I mean, if people now know that these aren't real returns, mm-hmm.
0: is it done? Algorithmic stablecoins are going to have a hard future. I, I'm not sure we see any of those flourish anytime soon. But you know, with any new industry, I'm glad that it happened because it was a good kind of test and and people were able to really try it out and see if it did work.
1: But does that mean if the algorithmic stablecoin market is going to be quiet, which I agree with you and we'll talk about that. Are there other crypto entities that are trying to um you know incentivize people to put money with them via these yields? Like are there other people willing to pay these yields away?
0: Yeah, there's a great business called Circle, which is USDC is their stable coin, one for one backed with US dollars, uh, US based and regulated. Um, they've been very transparent and has subjected themselves to audits and been very clear about how they're holding their reserves. They're just purely in the business of offering a stable coin to their customers. Yeah, yeah. So,
1: and that, that's a really important difference right because i think that those are two different types of businesses one that holds a portfolio of dollars which is transparently accounted for the the later innovation in air quotes of algorithmic stable coins where via this complex derivative math you know you're meant to try to arbitrage the price of two things upwards against one another i don't think we'll ever work. I mean, it's like trying to turn copper and bronze into gold. But if there's less people in the algorithmic space, is there still enough stable coin issuance to generate those higher yields and for there to be a functioning, stable, ongoing source of yield for retail and institutional investors?
0: Uh, there is certainly, uh, I believe today more so than any day, uh, a stronger market for that moving forward than there ever has been. In times like this, when there's been a bit of a of a, a retreat in the pricing and in the, the lending activity, yields have come down massively because there's not as much competition for deposits. There's a flight to quality. Everybody wants to be in USDC. They don't want to be in the next hot thing. Um, and so because of that, yields offered are down. However, I have no doubt that they will return when you know these markets stabilize a bit because competition will rise, competition will drive you know, f- folks offering more yield, uh, et cetera.
1: What you say there kind of touches on a few of the original thematic questions about Bitcoin, which would have been more natural for us to talk about at the start, but they're worth talking about. So in your view, is Bitcoin ever going to become a currency in the traditional sense that is widely used for goods and services all over the world? Or is it going to be something which does definitely have a use case? I mean, there's no question that there is intrinsic utility in Bitcoin at this point in time, but it is limited in its issuance. That's kind of the whole point, which makes it naturally deflationary over time, meaning that there can only ever be 21 million of them. So the more people that want to use that 21 million to buy and sell things, the more Bitcoin will appreciate in US dollar terms. That over time is a barrier to the use of a currency by a large number of people, because when $1 buys you more things tomorrow than it does today, you're more likely to hang on to that dollar. And that's what happened in Japan, right? For like 20 years.
0: Yeah. Bitcoin as the first cryptocurrency certainly was used as a currency in its in its early years. It's definitely been more of a store of value vehicle. Some people associate it more closely with gold than they do with US dollars. Yeah. Because people hold gold. And, you know, if I were to buy you a drink, I might pay. I I doubt that I would pay with gold because it's harder to.
1: Well, that's why Bitcoin is a better inflation hedge than gold, in my view. Like, I've never understood the argument as to why gold is an inflation hedge. Its utility as a superconductor and in jewelry is, you know, irrelevant to the size and the value that's been ascribed to it as an inflation hedge just because it's scarce. And. As you say, no one's taking gold galleons down to the pub, right? And we've got better superconductors. Whereas with Bitcoin, it is scarce, but also there's a whole raft of things you can use it for.
0: Well, I, I saw a funny uh, YouTube one time that it looked like you know the Stone Age, and a guy walks up to a bar in the Stone Age, and he's got a and the, the bartender's sitting there with a whole bunch of vegetables and and potatoes uh, behind him, and uh, the guy says to him, he's got a bar of gold, and he says to him. I'm gonna give you this bar of gold, and I want those vegetables. And the guy behind the bar says, "Bug off, get out of here." What are you talking about? He's trying to get the bouncer to kick him out of the bar because why would I ever accept a rock for a vegetable? <laughs> yeah, it's kind of archaic to think that people use gold for trade. Uh, gold for a long time was used as the reserve currency. And, you know, until 1971, the U.S. dollar was one for one with its gold reserve.
1: And that's the that's the historical context for why it has become. You know, again, in air quotes, an inflation hedge or a store of value. But that whole question of utility and intrinsic value, to me, there's a much better answer to that question with Bitcoin, which you can use to do stuff and easily trade in and out of and easily divide into small pieces and stuff like that.
0: I don't think that the future of Bitcoin is transactional and in- Whereas, you know, things like Circle I reference are these stable coins that are truly, you know, uh, compliant and backed and, and safe. People use those to, to transact all the time. It's also predictability, right? So if I have to pay my light bill on the 31st of the month, I want to make sure that I know that like Bitcoin's not going to trade off 10% and I'm not going to not have enough to pay my light bill. So I want to be holding a more stable asset.
1: Volatility is not good for, for budgeting.
0: Um, do you think Tether's a fraud? I don't. I know many of the folks that were behind that. Um, So what's going on there then? Because it's um, just for everyone's
1: benefit who's listening. Uh, There's been for a long time now um, skepticism around, I think the world's largest stable coin. uh, Yeah, it it was
0: the first stable coin. It it, it has been the largest stable coin. Um, They have not done a good job of, PR, where they n- nor regulation because they take the view that they don- are not subject to regulation because they're decentralized, which happens to be true. But they take the view that we don't owe that to anybody, and you trust us to have this in reserve. And if you don't trust us, don't use our our asset. Doesn't that go
1: completely against the entire premise of decentralization and and cryptocurrencies?
0: Like the idea is, yeah, transparency should be better.
1: Well, but but they're asking the entire world to trust them at their word uh, as to the what sits in their underlying portfolio, and, and and aside from the fact that that obviously raises your eyebrows in terms of why would you be so fired up about not letting anyone know where you hold when your business model is that you hold a dollar for a dollar.
0: Well, I don't, I don't know that Terra's model is that, that I hold one US dollar for one US dollar.
1: It goes back to my earlier question about what these guys are doing behind
0: the scenes with the
1: capital that flows onto their balance sheet. Are they just holding a vanilla portfolio that backs up the value of the coin or are they punting it around like hedge fund managers? Um, we don't know the answer to that with Tether based on what I've read. In yeah, the-
0: they've done a better job recently of disclosing balance sheet holdings, but they haven't been granular with that. Ironic to the fact that... Um, You know, if you are in a pool on a blockchain, you can go on to any block explorer and see physically, tangibly how much value is in that pool. The minute that you have a central authority like Tether is, which is not fully decentralized, the minute that you have Tether or Circle or any of these players as those at the helm it's upon their discretion to manage their book of business and if they do choose to whip it around and take risk for it, they still owe one for one back to the street.
1: But the stable coins you talked about in the US right where which are properly audited and where you can have confidence in the
0: dollar assets that back
1: the issuance. From what I can see, that level of disclosure is not there with tether. And so I don't know anything about you know what's going on behind closed doors, but, intuitively, it would seem odd to me that they would want to be evasive about showing what their underlying holding is in if they are just a stable coin. And and the reason I ask this is like confidence is clearly so important to this whole space. And I think providers that go out and show a clear set of audited accounts, which shows precisely what the backing to the coin is, why would you give your money to someone who's not doing that? Like, why would you give it to Tether?
0: Yeah, I don't disagree. No, I don't disagree. And I think that the future will be more around the circles than it will be the tethers.
1: Yeah. Um, last couple of topics, um, NFTs. So I've thought from the very beginning that the blockchain technology itself is is so critically new and different. I, I think it changes everything. Are NFTs to the blockchain, you know, to some extent, what crypto has been to the blockchain? Are they, have they got a bit overheated in terms of their popularity and the value that's ascribed to some of these things? Um,
0: no doubt. There's been a lot of volatility there. But what I'll say about NFTs and the way that that's kind of matured with digital art and and is progressing away from that a bit, I think that that will always be a thing just because, Art is an easy thing for people to understand—the transfer of value around. Right, this room that we're sitting in has art on the wall. Uh, somebody ascribes a value to it. It's only as liquid as somebody who's willing to pay it to you. Um, but people are—people have bought and sold art, whether it's a photograph in their bathroom or a expensive, you know, Picasso. It's the same thing with buying a piece of land or, or, or real estate, a home or a condominium, whatever it might be. You have to go out and get a title search <laughs> to ensure that that's not an encumbered asset and that I didn't pledge it against some other asset that you didn't know about. With NFTs, the reality of that is NFTs are just chain of title. NFTs are just transfer of value associated with something. Uh, There's more and more NFTs that have real world uh, attributes to them. And I just think that's the easiest way for people to have understood transfer of title. That's transfer of ownership and it's associated with something physical and tangible. That's not just a one and a zero on a blockchain.
1: I think that the chain of title argument is incredibly powerful for a bunch of different things. There's also some other stuff, which I think is naturally just overheated noise. Like, you know, things aren't valuable just because they're scarce. Right. And I do feel like there's been a bit of a rush in the non-fungible token space to, to take advantage of the hype. In fact, there's, you know, there's been some examples of, of um, influencers and stuff like this, you know, going out and pumping up coins that they owned and sold them down. But to me, there probably is an aspect of regulation there, or maybe they maybe people who try to front run the issuance of nfts get no the de, you know the department of justice of the SEC goes after them. Like does this is just a process, right? and and no doubt. Do you think over time some of the less compelling use cases for nft will fade away towards the more the realest stuff?
0: That's happening and as well as the validation of you know, is your watch authentic? You know I want to be able to go check the serial number and see that I'm the, that the person I'm buying it from is the right owner and it's not something that they swapped out into the into the box with the paperwork for something that they bought in Times Square. You know, so it's just chain of title and it's just transfers of value. Um, I do think that we would benefit from regulation for a lot of the on ramps and off ramps. I think that a lot of the uh, attrition that's occurred in the space has been gambling um and just like people who are whipping around penny stocks and people that are in in chat rooms saying you know I think that this biotech thing's going to get approved it, it it's it's very, it's very
1: it's exactly the same as what goes on in normal financial markets it just feels you know and this could be a really good thing it feels like in a massively compressed time frame a lot of the moral hazard which has emerged in traditional financial markets has found its way into crypto and there's been some bad stuff that's happened but it, the, the pod the upside to it to me is it looks like it sort of works through these issues quite quickly and, and it violently
0: writes fraudulent stuff down to zero it does it's 24 7 365 because it's fully liquid things go away pretty quick and and there's a, a certain truth serum to that that's healthy um, and and I think over time that liquidity and and that transparency is is a good thing for the market. And ironically, that's what a lot of the folks that are standing on their soapboxes screaming for regulation are are aspiring to get: mm-hmm. transparency and liquidity and and fairness. And what they don't realize, because they don't understand the asset itself, is that's really what this is, and that's exactly what they're trying to accomplish. And so, what they will what they will regulate are the on ramps and off ramps. Mm-hmm. And they'll regulate your ability to get money from your Bank of America account into Coinbase and ensure that you are aware of the risks when you get your money onto a blockchain. But once it's on a blockchain, it is inherently unregulatable. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so there's really nothing they can do about that. And and all these hearings on Capitol Hill where they want to talk about, you know, how are we going to regulate this thing? It's kind of, people in the industry just giggle because it's like... I
1: mean the, the 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 part of it that I think that they can regulate and should regulate is is not the actual the blockchain itself it's it's and, and in fact I think they are doing this anyway is they should just continue to go after anybody who's fraudulent in the way that they market any product right and
0: and perhaps that's sort of working it's healthy look efficient markets are healthy right? You're on the island in Nantucket where you can afford to charge probably more for a glass of whiskey than you can afford to charge in uh, Cape Cod uh, because it's it's a smaller demographic here and the supply and demand and there's more demand than there is supply. And so therefore people name their price. And and if you don't like the price, you don't order the whiskey. Mm -hmm. Um, Efficient markets in our world globally are safe. And that is the more transparent and the more public all of that activity is, the more the consumer is protected. What is not fair and what is not safe is when decisions are made behind closed doors in boardrooms by people that aren't looking out for their shareholders or aren't looking for jo- out for Joe Q public and just telling us on Monday, hey, here's what we decided over the weekend uh, yeah. just accordingly. Um, these cryptocurrency and digital asset markets and, and the blockchains themselves are inherently providing that piece to the market that they've always, you know, sought and they just need to really level set that.
1: All right. Last question. And this one uh, comes from my father-in-law. What were you thinking? Um, Allowing Tom Brady to go to Michigan instead of Notre Dame. And how did he not end up playing for the giants? Cause it would have helped my father-in-law's uh,
0: tipping pool for the last 20 years. <laughs> I wish I had that amount of influence. Uh, I, I wasn't, I wasn't asked uh, to consult back in those days and, Uh, in in Tom's decisions for college uh, but I think I think when he phrased the question to me he said
1: ask him why he didn't come to Notre Dame and then he could have had a great career
0: well he's asking that of a Boston College guy who has his own perspective on Notre Dame there I bet Well, well, thanks so much, mate. Um, I think this has been really insightful. And I will tell you this. I've never once met someone that the more they understood it, the less they wanted to be involved in it. And so if these assets are fixed supply assets, let alone decreasing supply assets, and the more people do understand it and comprehend it and engage with it, they want to participate in it, and therefore they're going to seek exposure to it. Those are fixed and depleting supply assets with massively rising demand. That's an asset class I want to be involved in.
1: That's a good final message. Well, thanks very much, mate. Uh, and I hope to see you again soon.
0: I, I, I enjoyed it. Thank you so much.
1: And now we're going to meet Jeremy Fox game. Jeremy's the CFO of Circle, the issuer of the USDC stablecoin, which, unlike most of its peers, has actually held its value during the current downturn. Jeremy and I sat down in New York City this week, and I kicked off by asking him about his path to his current role and what he makes of the current sell-off. Here's Jeremy. But let's, um, let's kick off. So I come to crypto as something of a novice. Um, so forgive any of my silly questions as we go through um, the interview. But in your own words, I'd love to hear um, your background, how you ended up in the role and and how you ended up living in the States, stuff like that. In many ways,
2: I view the various arcs and elements of my career to date as bringing us here to this point. Um, I started off 25 years ago, um, much like yourself as, a, as an investment banker with an offer out of college and I just kind of followed the herd. Um, and I was an investment banker in London in the mid and late 90s and early 2000s for about seven years. And that includes through the dot-com boom and bust, right. which is a fascinating period in, in, not in financial history. And it's a fascinating period in the history of the internet. Mm-hmm. And I covered technology stocks during that period and watched the birth of the internet as a commercial Mm. And endeavor. I obviously, it had been born in, I think, the late 60s and had been developing over the time. But I watched that through the dot-com boom and bust. And that was fascinating as, as, as the internet as a commercial endeavor and then a means of connecting so many people at scale.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: And we saw how the development of the internet and the infrastructure upon which it's built drove the cost of communication to zero. The mm. cost of information exchange fell to zero and the, the velocity of information exchange kind of exploded and the amount of information exchanged exploded mm. as over the next 20 years we invented kind of Facebook and the tools to manage the information we invented, Google, not just creating kind of trillion-dollar companies, but also radically reshaping the way we communicate. I mean, video chat is yeah. now a commodity-free service on the internet
1: and
2: yeah. was unthinkable when I started work. Um, And there's a lot of interesting parallels there with what's happening in crypto. I then got more interested in how the bank I was working at worked. Mm -hmm. And so decided to kind of evolve my career from being a banker doing business to working inside the bank, learning how a bank works. Which bank was it? Um, At that time, it was Rothschild. I started off at at a firm Robert Fleming which was one of the leading British merchant banks. Right. So I I, I moved from from being a banker. Uh, I joined McKinsey and Company to be a, a consultant to the banking industry mm. and I then spent I guess the best part of a decade on and off as a, as a management consultant to the banking industry helping senior leaders of of large mostly the largest financial institutions across the investment banking businesses the commercial banking businesses mm. And to a lesser extent, the retail banking businesses, helping them craft compelling strategies, mm-hmm. helping them build the go to market organizations necessary to deliver on those strategies, mm. helping them build efficient and effective organizations to do just that. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I did that through the financial crisis. So, another kind of tumultuous period in history. We had the dot com boom and bust and the financial crisis. And then the work I did and we did pivoted a lot towards helping those institutions sort of build more robust compliance programs, right? In response to all of the actions following the financial crisis. Yeah. But that gave me a really deep understanding of, of how money works. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I decided to pivot my career again. And, and what I really realized is that I wanted to be a CFO, mm-hmm. which kind of pulled several threads together. I was always a finance guy. Um, I got that robust training in my early career. Mm. I'd learned a lot about general management, every single functional discipline i have been exposed to as a, as a consultant. Yeah. And the interesting thing about being a CFO is that other than the CEO, it's probably the only role where your job description includes the words, understanding exactly how everything works. Yeah. Because what you have to do as a CFO is move an organization to do more of what creates enduring value mm-hmm. and to do less of what doesn't. Yeah. And to do that, you need to understand how the market is evolving, the strategic position of the company, what customers really care about, how to deliver against that. Because no enterprise does well sustainably over time without truly
1: meeting customer needs. So... If you were to look at the crypto market over, say, the last 18 months, how would you surmise what's happened? I think what we're seeing
2: is the end of the beginning, or perhaps better put, the end of this initial kind of Cambrian explosion of activity, most of which was centred around either speculation or early experimentation. Mm. And so what we've seen is this explosion of digital assets, explosion of business models, explosion of people innovating in what quite likely is going to be the forefront of the building blocks of finance in the future, yeah. all of which is very, very early. And alongside that experimentation kind of came the fervor. And we saw that in 2020 and 2021. And obviously that's now past, where innovation kind of married as it always does when new things come to the world, married with exuberant hucksterism. Yeah. And you kind of put those things together and you've got wonderful things happening and you've got challenging things happening and you've got, in some cases, nefarious things happening. And a lot of consumers got brought into the world of crypto.
1: Mm.
2: Many legitimate reasons they should be paying attention. And as it turned out, many less than legitimate reasons where products were being marketed to consumers without the normal protections that consumers have in the regulated financial industries. Mm-hmm. And so that led to the, the bubble that we all saw. And now that led to the drawdown that we've all seen, mm-hmm. right? And, and it would be remiss not to note that that came at an incredible human cost, right? As, as $2 trillion of digital asset market capitalization evaporated and, and obviously several well-known projects and well-known companies either evaporated or became bankrupt and are now working through that. That has a real consumer cost and consumer protection is a really important thread, presumably of this conversation we're about to have, as well as what the industry needs to do. Um, But at the same time, underneath all of this, there were a lot of people building and experimenting with things that really do have value. Mm -hmm. And we've seen the emergence of of financial primitives being built on chain, which are likely to evolve into... um, a new way of building financial services. Mm -hmm. And that's almost what remains now.
1: But drilling down into some of the more problematic pockets, um, first thing that jumps out at me as a finance guy is the decentralized finance market. It appears that a lot of the stress seems to um, be in some way connected to this wave of liquidity that flowed into the decentralized finance market because there were very, very wide spreads on offer. I mean, are those returns... Are they real? Is somebody actually paying those rates? Like who would wanna pay 17% to borrow money and why are they doing that? Are they sustainable real rates of return that will be available to retail and institutional investors on an ongoing basis? Well, I'm an old school
2: finance guy. And despite all the change that's happening in the world, the one thing that isn't going to change are the fundamentals of corporate finance. If something looks too good to be true, it probably is too good to be true. Mm-hmm. You put those two things together, I think that answers your question. Yeah. If someone is offering a risk-free return of 20%, mm-hmm. something's wrong. Mm-hmm. It's either not going to be twenty percent, or it's not risk free, or you're not going to get anything. And I think each of those have been illustrated in different
1: parts of the market over the last over the last few months. It's a really important observation, and it simplifies the question in a really effective way because something that's common to all different types of of graft across financial markets and different asset classes and in different industries is a breakdown of the correlation between risk and return. I think that one of the things that certainly has been reported to have driven those big yield was the issuance of these algorithmic stable coins and the most obvious one, because it was the largest and also because it's recently collapsed, being Terra. So. I'm interested, first of all, on your ideas on the concept. Are algorithmic stablecoins going to work? If not, do you think that that will materially change the availability of these higher yields?
2: You can classify stablecoins on a number of different dimensions. Are they backed by something? Are they regulated? And are they, in some ways, using an algorithm to maintain their stability? Now, the project you referenced, Terra, it was an algorithmic stablecoin that was backed by the Lunar token. And it was ARBing between the two that purported to give it stability to a dollar. Um, but as you noted in your question, neither of them had any intrinsic value. And so this was just, it was an ARB based upon faith, based upon the faith that these things would keep going up. And, and there was nothing intrinsic there. And On the one hand, that was obvious from the first look.
1: That's why it's so confusing because there's been all sorts of other examples of, of markets evolving to a place where they, without saying it, only work because the underlying asset price is going up. The most obvious example is adjustable rate mortgages in the United States, right? This happened in this algorithmic stablecoin. It's even more surprising because of the lack of intrinsic value. It looks like they're trying to turn copper and bronze into gold.
2: I mean, you can't make something out of nothing. Value comes from real world utility. Totally. Always. Yeah. It doesn't magic from somewhere and you can't engineer it. Mm -hmm. Financial engineering can move it, Mm -hmm. can slice it, and can package it. But ultimately, the value comes from solving people's problems Mm -hmm. in the real world. Mm -hmm. And that project wasn't solving a problem. It grew because of the promise of yields you've called unsustainable that were unsustainable because they weren't being generated from any actual utility
1: but that's what fueled the growth. Exactly, and that's the point, right? Because you and I sit here and we look, we can identify that weakness in this concept very easily and quickly. Perhaps your average uh, person on the street who doesn't work in finance is not able to. But more so, when there's when there's an intermediate actor who's willing to purport those returns to be higher quality than they are than they are. That's I think when you really get into trouble. And so, for the outlook for regulation, I imagine a sensible place for regulators to focus would be on how. Companies, centralized finance companies, are marketing their services um, so that people don't you know, think that they're, they're exposing themselves to a lower amount of risk than they are. I think that's exactly right, I and
2: mean, I think we're going to see that um, mm. in the, the the you know the, the recent months in the digital asset markets. We've seen we were talking about kind of algorithmic projects, but we've seen many organisations seeking effectively deposits from consumers so that they can on lend them to make a return. We've seen the risks inherent in those business models brutally exposed and brutally because Mm. of the consumer cost of all the people who've either lost their money or have their money currently trapped in in bankrupt institutions. Mm. These were unregulated shadow banks. And they've yeah. been exposed for what they were.
1: That's actually a good analogy. It does look a bit like the shadow banking market in China after Beijing regulated deposit rates. does have very similar aspects of that cowboy riskless return mentality, which has led us to where we are. But I think it's a good um, segue to talk about the other type of stablecoin. Um, you know, which which your company Circle has made its core business. Could you tell us a little bit about what's different between Terra that isn't backed by something with intrinsic value, and so USDC that Circle? Well, what's the right word for that? Mints or makes? i have um, used the word issues.
2: So Circle is the issuer of the USDC stablecoin, um, and yes, it is very different from many of the other projects in the market in that. For every one USDC issued, there is one US dollar in the care of the United States regulated financial services industry and system, which means the stablecoin is is fully reserved, backed by US dollars, uh, and that customers are able to mint and redeem their USDC for dollars and exchange it um, effectively on demand. This is not a fractional reserve banking model. This isn't like taking deposits leveraging them up and then going and making small business loans. The USDC reserve is held roughly 80 percent in short duration U.S. government treasuries and 20 percent in cash in the U.S. banking system, which gives sort of a depth of liquidity such that if there's $55 billion outstanding, such that if all USDC holders wanted to redeem all of USDC, that could just happen. No, you can do that in a day in the US. You're limited by the settlement capabilities of the traditional banking system at right. the back end. The way to think about this is that we are building a, a platform infrastructure for money on the internet, mm. right? And like good platform businesses, it's a network effects business. Mm. So there's a little bit of what you were suggesting, which is there is a piece of first mover advantage, which is if you've already built on this, why do you need to build on something else?
1: Yeah, it makes sense. Do you think Tether's a fraud?
2: I think there's a lot written about Tether. I think it's pretty clear that Tether fulfills an important role in the digital asset ecosystem. What role is that? Well, Tether was born when China, I think it's first time, sort of banned crypto companies and yeah, the people who traded digital assets needed a form of offshore shadow backing. Because they couldn't access the financial system, it's like a Macanese casino, and and but, Tether provided that. And the fact that Tether exists today is illustrative of the fact that there is demand for what they offer. Well, the point, the, the point I'm trying to make is
1: we're not offering that; I, uh, we offer something different, right? So, and then the reason I ask, you, but I think it's it's central to what's going on in the markets right now to understand why Tether's different from Circle now. Tether, from what I can tell, and I don't have any, I don't know anyone who works there, I've got no insight into to what's going on behind closed doors, but I can come up with no reason why they completely and wholesale refuse to properly disclose the portfolio holdings, which back up their stablecoin issuance in the way that your company does, right? The tea leaves to me, this doesn't look hard to forecast what's going to happen here. The reason I bring it up is do you, do you worry that you know, th- th- this impacts all stable coins, or do you view it more as an opportunity to describe to the market why you're different? I think what you're seeing is,
2: is, is the movement of the digital asset markets from what I think I called earlier sort of a speculative phase mm. into a utility phase. Mm. And what that means is more and more and more institutions, category-leading companies, mm. are thinking, how are we going to incorporate this new form of money into our business? How are we going to accept payments? How are we going to transact using it? Mm. And I think when those sorts of institutions at the the top end of the market are doing their research Mm. as to what do we want to build upon, they want to build upon something that is transparent, something that is trusted, something that is regulated, Mm. right? And they're forming their conclusions. I think at the other end of the market, Mm. the developers who are, are innovating in all sorts of different ways I think they're also learning about the different risks and the different risk profiles of different digital assets. I think part of the conversation is the last few months have brought that in sharp relief and have really raised the number of conversations that are happening about risk profile.
1: If we are going to arrive at a place where we have, where, where the blockchain is used as you've described it, we're going to have to arrive at a place where we insist on transparency. I think the market will insist on transparency. And so I think tether will naturally go away over a long time, right? So that's why it's probably a moot point to say, are are they telling us the truth or not? Long term, I think your model just clearly wins. But shorter term, isn't it surprising that in a market which is all about decentralization and that the biggest stable coin in the world is run by a group of people who are asking you to take take them at their word about what they hold in the portfolio. Against It it just seems incongruent with the whole ideology of the market as well to be this opaque. Uh, I, I, I mean, there is an important point in what you said, which is over
2: time, as the blockchain is used more and more mm-hmm. for what you might call real world utility value, right? That means people are going to be using their digital assets in the way they use money today. Yep. So their digital dollars need to be as as robust, if not more robust. And that's what we're building, something that's more robust than the dollar is, than the bank dollar is today. They need to be comfortable with that. And that's where this conversation kind of comes back to the the need and and the importance of regulation and complying with regulation and complying with law to give people that comfort.
1: And that's that's exactly what the last sort of topic I wanted to discuss, and that's the outlook. So do you think we're almost at like a, an ideological fork in the, um, in the evolution of this whole space where, like it, it feels to me like some firms like Circle are standing up as the adults in the room in, in this market sell-off, and, and that's putting into sharp relief the volume of shit that's been out there in terms of people trying to make a quick buck in this space, right? Going forward, I mean, what do you and your circle think about the outlook for regulation in terms of what's likely, um, but also in terms of what you think would be the best um, areas to focus on? Yeah, there's a lot
2: There's a lot in your question. Right? And I think there's always going to be, just as there are today, people who are ideologically and in- intellectually committed to ideas of decentralization, to ideas of moving away from government, to ideas of that individual freedom. Mm. Where we sit, I think, is in a very realistic point, Mm. which is for the vision we've set out where more and more real world activity of transactions and remittances and movement of money happens on chain, Mm. that's going to be regulated because that's what governments do. They look after their people by having proper consumer protection regulation to ensure that people who hold themselves out as something are actually that something. And so consumers don't need to worry about it. Just like we have the banking regulations in the United States today, Mm -hmm. that means that you and I don't worry about the safety of our dollar, whether it's in in Citibank or New York Community Bank. You asked about the outlook for regulation. Mm -hmm. We are well-regulated today, Right. right? We're regulated as a payments company, which is what we are in exactly the same way and under the same laws and regulations as other large payments companies like um, yeah, Apple with Apple Pay and Apple Cash, for example, and PayPal and Venmo, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, so we are regulated. Yeah. Now, we think that as USDC and other similar inventions become larger mm-hmm. and more important, In the world and in the United States, we're going to see, as we're seeing today, a call for even more regulation, which we welcome. I think back in 2013 at the very first congressional hearing on digital assets, Mm -hmm. our CEO Jeremy Allaire spoke at that, calling for harmonized regulation of, of digital assets. This is not something that is new for Circle. It is something that we have sought out at every stage of our evolution and is kind of core to who we are. And so right now, what you're seeing in the United States, at least, is a lot of interest among legislators and among the regulatory bodies as to how to evolve regulation of this space. Mm. And there's a lot of vigorous debate. I'm not really going to get into the debate as though, should it be this way or that way? Smart people are having that debate, and we will end up in a good place. We will end up with sort of federal oversight, of stablecoins as opposed to the state-by-state framework we have today. Yeah. And that only brings more scrutiny
1: upon us, which yeah. we welcome. When I first came to this recently, I was stunned at some of this stuff that had started to happen since I last looked closely at it, but not stunned so that it fell over, but, but it maybe started how quickly it had all happened. Um, but I do think that we are at a moment in time where the market is becoming more nuanced in identifying individual ventures and operations within cryptocurrencies and the blockchain that have value and those that don't. The stablecoin concept seems so incredibly integral to the ongoing development and advancement of decentralized technology for all the reasons that you outlined and we discussed, that I I, I was kind of disappointed, like seeing that the stablecoins have been doing all this stuff. And then somebody told me to go and look at, at Circle. I think that your business model is the right one. Um, and, I, and I think it will continue to succeed and, and as you say, it become, you know, pretty, could become quite an integral part of the, of the system going forward for sort of the newest um, dimension of, of, of money.
2: Thank you. I mean, we think there is tremendous opportunity ahead. Mm. We think that's been borne out by the market's response to USDC over the last few months. Mm. But the real opportunity is still some way in the future. And we're in a period of of building and in a period of building relationships, building on the trust we've already earned. And it's more a case of watch this space. I think you've started to see how at scale real-world companies are building on USDC. There's been a number of announcements over the course of the year, mm-hmm. right? Whether it's whether it's MoneyGram building on USDC or Twitter doing USDC payouts to creators, whether it's BlackRock actually investing in Circle as a corporate strategic stake and as part of that partnership.
1: When are they going to buy the rest? Well,
2: I don't think that's going to happen, (laughs) but as part of that partnership, exploring capital markets use cases, right? You're seeing as the signposts to the future.
1: Jeremy, thank you so much. Um, It was really, really interesting seeing you talking with you. Um, But uh, look, I think you guys doing all the right things and and well done and came up with the work.
2: Thank you. Look, it was a pleasure to talk to you. It was a terrific conversation. I hope your listeners enjoy it. Thank you. Thanks.
1: Righto, that's it for the first part of the crypto crash. Uh, If you enjoyed the episode, please like, subscribe, and maybe even share it with a friend. It helps me to broaden the audience that I get this out to. So stay tuned for episode two. And until then, I'm Jack Wright. I'm an Australian journalist based in New York City and a contributor to the Washington Post and the Australian Financial Review. And this is episode three of my new podcast, The Intersection. Thanks for listening.